0: what would make life better? Go on, don't be afraid. Yell it out. I heard no masks, right? That would be nice, wouldn't it? Well, your life will get better this Thursday or Friday. I can't remember, but soon. All right, you might be too afraid to share with those around you. You might be too afraid to say it out loud, but I think deep inside, we all have a pretty good idea about what might make our life better. We all have a pretty idea of how a pretty good idea about how we would get to the good life. Well what would make your life the good life? Is it more money? Less work? More freedom, less responsibility, more love, less fighting, more comfort, less COVID. Well, not that one. Well, for the next three weeks, uh, we're going to spend some time looking into what Jesus says is the good life. The life that he describes for us in these Beatitudes, the opening words of the Sermon of the Mount. But as we look at these Beatitudes, these these eight statements of blessings, the, the bits that start with blessed are, these descriptions of what Jesus says is the good life, Well, we're soon going to see that what we think is good and what Jesus says is good are not necessarily the same. Now, there's definitely some overlap, isn't there? Most people can agree that, you know, it's good to be a peacemaker. It's good to have a pure heart. Most people will agree with Jesus on that one. Uh, Some of them are a bit borderline. Blessed are the meek. Yeah, sometimes we agree with Jesus on that. But blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the persecuted. No no one thinks those are good things. None of you spoke to the person next to you and said, hey, I just really want to be more sad this week. That's not what we think will make our life better. It's not the good life. And so what's clear here right from the outset is that we're not naturally inclined to agree with Jesus. Something that we call bad, he calls good. And on the flip side, many of the things that you and I would call good, well, Jesus would come out and say, they're not as good as you think they are. Clearly, there is a divide between the life that we think is good and the life that Jesus says is good. And so there's two ways that we can deal with that difference of opinion, isn't there? We can pat Jesus condescendingly on the head and thank him for his opinion, but continue to live our own way. We can decide what we think the good life is and continue chasing after the things that we want. Or we could stop. We could listen to Jesus. We could question our own ideas and ask, are the things that we think are good actually good? Is having an abundance of money actually good? Is having everyone like you actually good? Is living in comfort actually good? Now, they all sound good, don't they? As I say them, you're like, yeah, they are good. But are they truly good? What is it that makes them good? These are the kinds of questions that I want us to be asking And it's my hope that today and over the next two Sundays, we'll see that Jesus actually has something better to offer us. The good life that we crave is a poor imitation of the good life Jesus shows us in these Beatitudes. But we're going to need God's help to actually see that. We're going to need God's help to change what we think is good. And so I'm going to do that now. I'm going to pray. How about you pray with me? Uh, Father, open our eyes this morning, we pray, so that we may see the good life that you want us to live. We ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would not just change our minds, but that you would change our hearts so that we might love what you love, And see as good what you call good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh, I've lost my screen. I'm just going to jiggle that cord, sorry. Alright, we're going without a screen. All good. Well friends, this morning we're going to consider these first three Beatitudes... Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 2, 3, and 4. These first three Beatitudes in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. But before we do that, before we look into what Jesus actually says, we first need to understand that if we want to understand what Jesus is saying, we need to understand the context in which he's saying it. And if you'd been reading Matthew from the beginning, there's, there's one thing that would have really stood out to you. One thing about Jesus that Matthew wants to really emphasise, and that is the fact that Jesus is king. All right, the very first sentence of the book of Matthew, Matthew tells us that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He wants you to know that Jesus is the king and he comes from a line of kings. In chapter 2, when Jesus is born, we see the wise men from the east traveling to Jerusalem, which is the royal city, the city where the king is. And they ask Herod where they can find the one who has been born king. In chapter 4, verse 17, after Jesus is baptized, after he's tempted by Satan, Matthew records the very first words of Jesus' ministry. Jesus says, repent. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. If you look at the context of the book of Matthew, Jesus is king. That is what Matthew wants us to see. Jesus is king. And so when we get to chapter 5 and Jesus sits down on a mountainside to teach the crowds of people that have started following him, he's teaching them about life in his kingdom. The Beatitudes, the whole Sermon on the Mount, it's not just a wise man sharing wisdom. It's not a miracle worker entertaining the crowds. It's not a guru giving you some life coaching. This is Jesus, the King, telling you what life can look like in his kingdom. It's a little bit like he's on the campaign trail in the lead up to an election. You know, that six-month process before an election that we all hate watching the news because you've got two candidates for prime minister or president and they're all outlining a picture of what life will look like with them in charge. And they make promises, some of which they keep. But there's two key differences here because as Jesus lays out his manifesto, as he shares with us what life will look like when he's the king, uh, firstly, what he says is actually true And so the description of life in his kingdom is accurate. But the other difference here is that Jesus' opponent on the campaign trail is you. In the two-party preferred system, it's Jesus versus you as king. And so as Jesus sits down to teach the crowds, he's showing you what life could be if he's your king instead of you being king. And so, you've got two options, don't you? You can keep living your own way, chasing after the things that you want. Or you can let Jesus be king and chase after the things that he says are good. And so, who will be your king? That's the question for you this morning. Who will be your king? It's time for us to vote. Will you continue to live by your own standards of goodness? Or will you, will you do what you want, when you want, because you want? Or will you let Jesus call the shots? Will you pledge your allegiance to Jesus the King? Well, as we look at the verses now, as we consider what life is like when Jesus is King, the first thing that he wants us to know is that if he's your King, life in his kingdom looks like the winner's The blessed ones, the happy ones, being the poor, the sad, and the lowly. It doesn't look like that in many other kingdoms, does it? Now, first up, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And being spiritually poor is not all that different from being financially poor. Just like the person who has their card rejected at Woolies, because of insufficient funds. The spiritually poor person is rejected by God because of insufficient righteousness. A spiritually poor person is someone who's not good enough for God. They can't offer what he requires, they can't meet his standard. And if you keep reading Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, you'll see that Jesus has really high standards. Jesus will go on to say that God's standards are so high that anyone who even thinks hateful thoughts is guilty of murder and that a man who mentally undresses a woman is guilty of sleeping with her. Being a good person is not just about the external It's about our desires and our thoughts. Being right with God is not just about being better than the guy that lives next door to you. It's about being good in an absolute sense. In fact, Jesus goes on to summarize it pretty well. He says, if you want to be in my kingdom, be perfect. As God is perfect. Be perfect in the same way that God is perfect. And so if complete moral perfection is the standard that God requires of us, it is really, really clear that we're all spiritually poor. We're all bankrupt. That None of us have anything to offer God with which he might be impressed. God has set the standard He's laid down his law. If we want to live in his world, we need to live sin-free lives. And I think we all fell well short of that standard, don't we? And so we're separated from God. We cannot live with this holy God. We're born sinful, we'll die sinful, because we cannot fix that problem. And Jesus comes out and says, this is a good thing. Jesus says the spiritually bankrupt will be blessed. Now, clearly the fact that everyone who has ever lived has fallen short of God's standards and broken God's laws, clearly that is not a good thing. God doesn't like us rebelling against him. It grieves him. He hates our sin. And so what Jesus Jesus says is good here is not the fact that we are spiritually bankrupt, but it's the recognition of that fact. You're not blessed by being spiritually poor. We're all spiritually poor. You're blessed by admitting that you're spiritually poor. Uh, Perhaps a way of illustrating it is uh, to see two kinds of poor people Uh, There's a financial counsellor I was reading about, and he says he sees these two kinds of poor people walking into his office for financial counselling. Two clients. His first client was a single mum. She walks into the office with her eyes glued to the floor. Her hair's messy, her clothes are stained and old, and the look in her eyes says that she knows she's in trouble. After her husband left her, she turned to drink and to the pokies to try and numb the pain. She became so addicted that she lost her job, and now the money's run out. She can't get a credit card, so she legitimately cannot even fund her pokey habit. There's literally nothing in her bank account the food in the pantry is all but gone and it's only a matter of time before the landlord kicks her out for missing rent payments. Now she's getting help with the gambling problem and the financial counsellor manages to negotiate a deal with the landlord and to get food and clothes for her family. Now this woman is poor. She knows she's poor. And so she cries out for help. The second client the counsellor sees is wearing expensive clothes, driving a Beamer. He strides proudly into the office, and the counsellor sees him and thinks, this guy's in the wrong place. Surely this guy does not need financial help. But as they start talking, it becomes clear that this man is indeed poor. In fact, he's poorer than the woman. He lives in a mansion by the sea, but it's mortgaged and he can't even afford the rent. Uh, He can't even afford the interest, sorry. The car he drives is on a lease that he can't afford. The clothes on his back, the toys that fill his house are all bought on a growing number of credit cards and personal loans totaling hundreds of thousands of dollars that he can't pay. This man too is poor, but he won't admit it. He's got nothing, but he wants to live like he's got everything. And until he's ready to actually limit his spending, there's nothing the counsellor can do to help him. There's two kinds of poor people, and it's the same with spiritual poverty. We're all poor. None of us can afford to pay what we owe to God. Our spiritual accounts are empty. But the question is, will we admit it? Will we be like the woman who knew she was poor and so cried out for help? Or will we be like the second man who refused to acknowledge that there's something wrong? Friends, it's really easy to live as if sin isn't a problem. It is so easy. You can go out this week and you can be greedy and you can be selfish. You can lust after sex with someone who's not your spouse. You can crave power. You can lie. You can cheat. You can steal and hardly anyone will even notice. It's easy to live your life in this world as if sin isn't really a problem. It's even easier when you're living that kind of comfortable upper-middle-class life where you're polite and friendly and you look nice. No one will call you a sinner. No one will call you to account. It is so easy to live as if sin isn't a problem. It won't be a problem to other people. It's so easy to convince yourself that it's not a problem to you. But the danger is that we actually start to believe it's not a problem to God. And even Christians can fall into that trap because we dress nice and we talk nice and we play nice and we do all the nice Christian things and we convince others that sin is not a problem for us. We'll start to convince ourselves that sin is not a problem for us and then we'll convince ourselves that our sin is not a problem to God. We'll think that we're actually good enough for God. We'll count ourselves worthy of his love and attention. And when we do that, we are poor people pretending to be rich. We're people with massive debts driving beamers. But here Jesus says the good life, the blessed life, the life that we all want is when we admit that we're broke. Because it's only then that we can ask Jesus for help. It's only then that we admit that we're sick and we'll go to the doctor. It's only when we give up hope of trying to be right with God by our own merits that we'll think to even ask Jesus to make us right. It's only when we admit what we are that Jesus can make us what we ought to be. It's only when we admit what we are that Jesus can make us what we ought to be. And so, friends, have you admitted your spiritual poverty to Jesus? Have you come to that point of realising that when you stand before Jesus and he calls in his debts, you've got nothing? It's a painful process realising that you're spiritually bankrupt. It's humiliating. It means admitting that you're wrong and none of us like that. And that's why Jesus says in those next two verses, Blessed are those who mourn and blessed are the meek. Because those two things, mourning and meekness, accompany spiritual poverty. While it's true that anyone who mourns can find real comfort in the hope of the gospel, the context here leads me to think that Jesus is talking about mourning sin specifically it's about being meek towards god and so with our spiritual poverty if we mourn our guilt and not just mourning the effect of sin on ourselves but mourning the effect of sin on other people and the effect of our sin on god if we grieve our sin and if we approach god with humility and ask for his forgiveness it's then that we'll receive the blessings of his comfort and his love and his mercy. And so friends, if you're here this morning and you haven't admitted your sin before God, if you haven't asked Jesus for forgiveness, do that today. Because when you do, you will be blessed. You'll be blessed because you'll be welcomed into Jesus' kingdom You'll be comforted with the knowledge that you are more loved, more safe, more secure than you could ever imagine. And you'll know that when Jesus returns to judge, you'll go with him to share in his inheritance. You'll inherit the earth with Jesus. Friends, admit your sin to God today and you can have the good life. That is the good life. It's the blessed life because it's the life where you live with Jesus as king forever. Friends, if you're not yet a follower of this Jesus, do that today. Uh, But if you are, if you're a Christian, if you're calling yourself a follower of Jesus, uh, do the same today. Admit your sin to God because we need to keep doing it. It doesn't stop at conversion. It's something that we need to keep doing so that we keep reminding ourselves that we need Jesus to forgive us. So friends, if you haven't confessed your sin to God in a while, let me urge you to do that today. In fact, we're going to do it at the end of the sermon together. But don't just do it today, do it every day. Be open with God. Admit to him that you're spiritually bankrupt. Grieve over the fact that you still sin. Humble yourself before him. Because it's when you do that, that you'll be reminded that the kingdom of heaven belongs to you. Because Jesus has dealt with your spiritual poverty. We are all poor, but Jesus has blessed us with his riches. And so we can rejoice knowing that we now belong in his kingdom. So let me return to the question I asked at the beginning. Who will be your king? Will you continue to live as your own king today? Will you live by your own rules as if sin isn't a problem If sin is even something to be celebrated. Will you convince yourself that you're rich when in fact you are desperately poor? Or will you live with Jesus as king? Will you admit that you're poor, grieve over your sin, humble yourself before God by bowing the knee to King Jesus? Now, that might be painful, it might be difficult, it might be humiliating, but it's the way to the good life. Because the good life is going to last a lot longer than your 80 odd years here on earth. The good life is life with Jesus forever, and it is good. It's the way to have riches that make gold look like dirt, it's the way to have comfort and security that nothing else on this earth can provide. It's the way to enjoy love like you have not known. It's the life that you were made to live. It's the best life you'll ever live. So will you let Jesus be your king? Well, as I said, I don't think there's any better way for us to end sermon like this than to actually admit our sin to God and so I'm going to do that I'm going to pray a prayer where we acknowledge sin Um, if any of this resonates with you if this prayer is relevant to you uh, join in by saying amen at the end but let's pray together our father you are holy and we are not you are righteous and we are not With our thoughts, our words, and our deeds, we break your law and we dishonor you. Please show us the severity of our sin as you show us the glory of your holiness as we confess our sin before you now. We have had other gods before you. We've sought pleasure in everything but in you. We have loved to praise our own glory more than yours. We have taken your name in vain. We've prayed religious prayers to impress others. We've uttered your name countless times without any reverence or love. We have murdered in our hearts. We've murdered as we destroy our neighbours with our words, as we judge others with our minds, and as we harbour hatred in our hearts. We have committed adultery with our eyes. We have loved temptation rather than fighting it. We have justified our lusts by using the world as our standard. We have stolen what is not ours and coveted what belongs to others. Our lives overflow with discontent, ungratefulness and greed. We have complained in the midst of your abundant provision. We have lied to you and to others. We've told distorted truths, half-truths and untruths. We have hidden the truth to make ourselves look better. God, we have sinned against you so many times, too many times for us to count. We are indeed spiritually poor. We have no excuse. We have no answer to your wrath and your just judgment on our sin. We have no answer. But you have the answer. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your love. Thank you that we are welcomed into your kingdom when we acknowledge that we are poor in spirit. It's in the name of our glorious Saviour who laid down his own life so that we could be forgiven for our many sins. We praise you, Father. Amen.